St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. So this uh, is the beginning of our second class uh, on the Divine Liturgy. Uh, I kind of knew that the intro wasn't going to be able to be done uh, in one go at it. So we'll see how long we go take to go through the Divine Liturgy. Maybe there might be you know, a litany or something where I highlight a few things. But part of the reason for going slow, quote unquote, is so that we can hit things and actually go a little bit deeper. Because we could just go, you know, here's the beginning of the liturgy. Okay? You know, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and through ages of ages. Amen. You're like, you know what the Trinity is. You know basically what the kingdom of God. And everybody says amen. Let's get to the litany. You know, and we can move quickly. But I would like for us to be able to <coughs> dig in a little bit deeper at certain uh, places. Uh, particularly right now, we've gone through the Old Testament, just looking at what it means to talk about the kingdom. Uh, so we kind of did a mini like fall covering fall, creation, fall, uh, and then God's uh, promises, the way that he was going to reinstitute or reestablish uh, his rule and our joining in that rule with him uh, for us to be able to go back to uh, the kingship and queenship of Adam and Eve to where God created us to be as mediators between uh, heaven and earth instead of uh, creatures that tend mostly to just be consumed with the earth and not really ever looking upwards to heaven or be consumed with heaven. So we traced Abraham. Uh, we did a little bit of, I believe, De Jacob. Um, and just, uh, let's see here. And then we moved through the forefathers, a little bit of Joseph too. We hit on Joseph. Um, mostly these are kind of highlights to just kind of see the patriarchs. Um, we can, at a future class, be able to get, dig a little bit deeper because we could spend a really, really long time in Genesis uh, if we wanted to. And same with Exodus. We could spend a really long time. Uh, we got into Exodus, and we begin, uh, began Exodus with talking about Sinai as this uh, event in the life of Israel that... Uh, is one of the, if not the defining moment for Israel. That if you go through uh, the life of Israel from then on, you go uh, to the kings, to the Psalms, uh, even some of the you know wisdom literature, uh, even up into the prophets, they're all going to come back to this covenant or reference this covenant that is made between God uh, and the people at Sinai. There had been some covenants or promises that already go back to Abraham, uh, but it is at Sinai with Moses that we get, um, I say like the image or the kind of cluster of things that really kind of anchor uh, Israel's relationship with God. Uh, does anyone uh, remember anything or aspects that we talked about with Exodus last week? Talking about um, <clears throat> when everyone went up to see, um, essentially 
hanging out with a woman, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of already almost a fast yeah. sort of. There's already a sense in Exodus of there is a particular space that has been set aside that requires on the part of the people of God to, uh, for one particular thing that the text says, refrain from sexual relations uh, before uh, Moses goes up the mountain, uh, that no one besides Moses is basically supposed to go up the mountain, uh, that if it was, that they would, um, how shall I say, die. Uh, (laughs) There was this sense also that all of this uh, accompanies um, the giving of the law and specifically we looked at Exodus 19 and the whole purpose of all this. Why did God call them out of Egypt? Yes, he had made the promise to Abraham. He had reaffirmed this promise uh, to Isaac, to Jacob, and Joseph dies with this promise in mind that his body is to be buried back in the promised land, even though it's buried at the time in Egypt. Um, but what is the point that God has brought them out into the desert that the people don't seem to really grasp? Because they would rather go back to the flesh pots to use the King James <laughs> version of uh, Egypt. Stiff-necked they were, do what? I said stiff, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, uh, yes, hard-hearted, uh, uncircumcised of heart, yes. They were to be made uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All of this uh, tying into our theme of the kingdom, that the whole point of Sinai, all of this preparation, all of this, uh, I say, the cloud that descends, the trumpet-like blasts, uh, Moses going before them to be a mediator, uh, to bring back to them the law that God reveals to Moses, all of this The purpose of this is to bring out and underline that they are to become a chosen people, a kingdom of priests. So we also, as we're talking about this, we're kind of paralleling already, right? Uh, The Orthodox Church in our liturgical life reflects many aspects of the way in which um, Sinai functions, the divine liturgy uh, and temple worship and tabernacle worship. Uh, that flows out of Sinai, because this is where the tabernacle is revealed uh, to Israel. This is how you're going to worship. This is how you're going to set it up, uh, etc. That we have many of these same aspects. That when you come to Exodus and you're looking at the law, the way that worship functioned in Israel, uh, many aspects of this are the exact same way that the Orthodox Church understands worship. There is holy places, There are places that are set aside that are only particular people are, um, if you want to say ordained, set aside, because ordination is being set aside, uh, to be able to handle particular things uh, for the people of God. So for example, I know there's a kind of a mixed level of knowing the ins and outs of orthodoxy in here. So for example, anyone who is going into the altar the only reason to go into the altar in the first place is to first basically have a blessing from the priest and have a, a very specific reason to be back there because it's not just a kind of uh, a hangout spot 
Yes, Your Awesomeness. I have a blessing from the Bishop of the Greek Orthodox Church to go back and find the altar. For his, for his altars. Serve, yes, for, his, <laughs> for his altars. Yes. But, I, you know. but when, if you're serving back there, then you have a reason to be back there. Uh, same with like cleaning, etc. These kind of things, because there obviously there's practical things that occur uh, that need to be taken care of. But things that are on the altar are reserved for deacons and priests, and of course, obviously the bishop, to be able to take care of, maintain, clean, etc. So that is, these are set aside uh, things, and you can see this throughout uh, the life of Israel. Um, even up into, you know, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the, the temple and they were trying to move it around and nobody was supposed to touch it except a priest and somebody, in with good meaning, goes to touch the Ark and you remember what happens to him? He, he dies. He dies. <laughs> so there he is... It was, gonna fall it, was, it was clear to him that it was going to fall over. So he intervened and put his hand out. So the last thing that we actually uh, stopped at was this fascinating occurrence that's probably not, when you, when you think of Exodus, uh, maybe you have a better imagination than mine, than I think of, of course, what was the classic movie about Moses? Is it, is it the Ten Commandments? And you kind of think about, you know, Moses with the hair coming down and, uh, but you miss a lot of aspects of Exodus if you're relying on your knowledge of Exodus from this movie. Uh, that there is this fascinating meal that occurs that happens between Moses uh, and the elders as a kind of sealing of uh, what has occurred when God has given the law. He's given the way that he wants Israel to live. Uh, and then there's this meal and this idea of um, sacrifice, but also communion that occurs where God sits down uh, with them and eats a meal. So, We've already. I'm sorry, I just don't recall it, Father. He, he, he brings the people the commandments, and then there's a meal? There's a meal. Exodus 24. Okay. Do, do, do. Hold there's on. A meal with. Uh, so he goes up with Aaron. Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So there's, there's, well, Lord calls Moses up to the mountain to give uh, the tablets, stone tablets the law, but it's already in Exodus. Exodus kind of works almost kind of cyclically in a way because you've already gotten chapters of the Ten Commandments has already occurred, uh, personal injuries, property rights. I'm using the fake, you know, headings that are not scripture, but kind of give you an idea of what's in there. Um, but what you have basically here is the people, and this is something that uh, happens and is redoubled because this kind of framework is then kind of reinstituted. God calls them out. Uh, he says, this is how I want you to live. I've saved you. Uh, this is the way you're to live. This is the way you're to worship. You are to be a light to the entire world. Uh, you're going to be uh, you know, a nation of priests and kings. And the, all the people say, yes, amen. We're going to do this. This sounds great. Um, 
but we know the rest of the story, right? Um, this Sinai as a paradigm for the relationship of God, and we could go a little bit further into Exodus uh, for looking at like a little bit more specifically at the tabernacle or the fact that the, the presence of God, the Shekinah of God, descends and fills the tabernacle uh, and how the, his presence uh, follows Israel, uh, leaves at a different point uh, in the exile. Um, but what you get with Sinai is, uh, as I've said, a paradigm. And this calling out, um, in many ways, you have very similar to the exact kind of structure of the liturgy. We are called out of the world. We assemble together as the people of God. Uh, we do not assemble at a mountain, but uh, at a, very many of the theophanies, and even in your reading the Gospels, uh, important parts of the Gospels, like, for example, theophany itself, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these, even though I know Luke is on a plane, but uh, you get these ideas uh, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you're on top of a mountain. There's always mountains going on. Uh, these are kind of, you know, think about it. What's the closest that you can get to heaven before you had planes? A mountain. <laughs> That's the closest that you're going to get. So there is this, I mean, we say like mountaintop experiences, but I think there's this idea at the top of mountain, you are, you are kind of breaking into or you are close to heaven. Uh, and there's a reason why mountains are constantly uh, coming about. But God calls out. He's the one who has saved them from Egypt. He then uh, proceeds to give them his word, his teaching, uh, and he forms them. Uh, so, for example, he gives them the law. The people in adoration and faith say yes. Uh, and then this is followed. You can see, like, you have the kind of the structure of the liturgy of the word, where we are reciting uh, in the antiphons the acts of God, uh, what God has done for us, etc. Uh, and then you're moving into the epistle and the gospel. And then you move into a sacrifice and a meal. And one of the things about kind of the Sinai paradigm that I think reverberates through liturgy and just kind of in the mind of Orthodox Christianity is that the relationship with God is not individuals who have contracted out individual relationships with God. You know? So Joe over here has made his deal with God. Elizabeth has made her deal with God. And we all kind of have these various contracts with God. Uh, it is that God establishes a corporate uh, body that he has established, that he has called out, that he governs via the people that he has called out, um, that it has, that it's, it has laws. <laughs> It has ways that they're supposed to prepare themselves for worship, all of these things. It's, uh, and also I'd say that church is, especially I think here in East Tennessee or throughout kind of the South, you have this just knee-jerk reaction to uh, ritualism, right? That what we do is ritualistic, that we do vain repetition uh, you've, I'm sure you guys have heard of this kind of criticism sure, before, right? Knows what it means before. You're just doing it because right, it. nobody has any idea. It's, it's meaningless. Bunch, just a bunch of droning. Right. Uh, so my question is always, so was this all just droning meaninglessness for Israel? 
And Israel had a particular way that they worshiped that was given. Uh, you had a priesthood, you had ritual, you had all of this built into the basic way of relating to God. Um, I really, it kind of blows my mind that this is how the Old Testament is set up in the New Testament. Then you have a completely new situation where all of this is just completely blown out of the water. And now all it really is is these kind of uh, individualistic uh, relationships with God that are not mediated by anything, uh, except maybe the popularity of a pastor or something. Uh, that's kind of it. Um, what happens after uh, they agree to follow uh, God and accept his law? It's kind of a hiccup. Calf. <laughs> Do you care to, t- to share with what what about the calf? Uh, don't they generally just get tired of waiting around on Moses and uh, <laughs> decide, well, you know, let's melt down all the stuff we took and make us a god to worship? <laughs> yep. So you have this fascinating account. While the people have agreed, <laughs> we're going to follow God. He saved us from Egypt. He's delivered us from slavery. Uh, Moses is taking a, a while. So why don't we boil down, melt down all of our gold, and we're going to build ourselves a golden calf, and we are going to party like it's, I don't know, 1999 B.C., or probably further back, 5,099. Um, and what's fascinating is who does this? Who leaves this? Aaron does. Aaron does. I think he did the proverbial put your finger in the air and saw where the wind was blowing and said, okay, uh, I guess this is what we're doing now. Uh, Yeah. For the first father, I I, I have read or heard, I can't remember, I I listened to too much of it makes me realize. But the calf is not just a random thing. I mean, the calf, the symbol of fertility and everything else, that was was deep in the surrounding pagan cultures. It was was not just a random symbol. Correct. Yes. Did you have anything else, Lazarus, to add to that? Just agreeing. Just agreeing. (laughs) So they fall back into idolatry, and the Lord says to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it's not that they, they, they needed God somehow to be mediated to them. They weren't patient enough. They decide to make a, a calf and attribute to this, this idol, this God that they've created, uh, the God of Israel that has called them out. So... Who said that God? Was that God? Do what? Was that God speaking to them? Yes. I thought it was interesting he said, your people. The people that you brought out of Egypt have turned, yes. That might just be uh, a translation thing there, too. So, Um, how long was Moses up there? 40 days. Yeah, 40 days. days. Yeah. Which is significant. Please. (laughs) 40 days. No, no, no. no. 40 days. But in God's time, it could have been just one day to him. Yes, but the people are hanging out for 40 days. The people are hanging out for 40 days. There are, there are lots of uh, events in, in Scripture which are 40 days. Yes. Uh, Jesus 
was in the desert for 40 days fasting. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days twice. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism. They wander through the wilderness. For 40 years. Uh, yeah, it's not a random number that was picked up. Correct. So one of the things in, in kind of hitting Exodus and talking about the liturgy uh, itself, I'm going to make a little assert, uh, aside here, is the liturgy uh, helps train us on how to read scripture. And part of that is being able to pick up on things like repetition, uh, I'll say like typology, etc. that whatever has happened in the past, when the, the scripture is read for us in the assembly, uh, we're not going to suddenly hear in the sermon a historical report about what happened to Jesus and the apostles back in the day. And uh, then today, this is what we do Similarly, we basically, we find ourselves in the same spot uh, of the people of God at whatever time, the scriptures that I address to them, and we find ourselves hearing God speaking through those words to us now. So there's a uh, way in which attentive reading of scripture is absolutely formative for our understanding of what we're doing in worship, and worship then also feeds uh, us in figuring out how to read scripture. Uh, an attentive, close reading of scripture, uh, I would say, is absolutely necessary. Uh, it is something, uh, there's a lot, there's a tendency with a lot of new orthodox to lose the practice of reading scripture because suddenly you get 2,000 years of uh, writings of church fathers, uh, etc., and so you go on a binge uh, and it could take you four or five years before you get back to scripture. I've, I've seen it often. I don't think, I do not suggest you doing that. Um, the reading of scripture, if you, especially if you're trying to read anything like the fathers, you need to know scripture because the fathers are commenting and talking about Platonism? Are they talking about, I don't know, what, what are they talking about? They're talking about scripture. <laughs> they might argue and debate with certain, you know, philosophical movements that are later, but the core content of what they're talking about and what you need to know is scripture. You seem like you had something that you wanted to say. Well, <clears throat> they they do uh, address uh, both the uh, philosophic schools and the heresies of the day. Yes, rather extensively. Yes, There's a lot it, especially if you're going to slog through Irenaeus' adverse heresies or something like this. Which you, I don't suggest you do that. Because <laughs> you, <laughs> you will learn a lot about Gnosticism and aeons and all sorts of stuff that nobody believes in now. <laughs> Okay, so maybe some people on the internet somewhere believe <laughs> in some of the things that Irenaeus was yeah. dealing with. Well, no, I, I, no, no, it, it, it has struck me looking at the ancient heresies that very often I see people who believe in the ancient heresies, but they know nothing about the ancient yes. heresies. They do not use the same terminology yes. as the ancient heresies. But, for example, you know, good-hearted people who say, you know, I, 
I, I think what happened was, you know, Jesus was born as a regular guy and he eventually became God. And you're going, oh, Lord, have mercy. We resolved that 1,500 years ago. You know, yeah. but, yes. you understand what I mean? So, 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 yes. so I think they're still around. But that was in the New York Times just three days ago. So. Oh, it was? Oh, well, okay. That must be right. I'm so, sorry. Never mind. He's a nice guy. He's not a, it's, uh, yeah, it's so, and I also was going to mention that yes. also in my, in my tiny reading, I don't read very much at all, but it, but it does seem to me that when they talk about the heresy problem, their response often is rooted in Psalms. Absolutely. Well, you can see a lot of the early Christian heresies uh, are bad readings of Scripture themselves, too. Yeah. Uh, where they have, or either they already have presuppositions about what the scripture should be saying. So something like kind of Gnosticism, because that can cover a whole lot of variations. Uh, they just use scripture as a kind of cipher for what they want to find. Uh, we've never encountered this before, where scripture is used for all sorts of other things. Where are you uh, that, <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to make some money, so I'm going to string together some verses. Certainly, um, certainly, certainly poor, misguided uh, interpretations of scripture, but also blendings of all kinds of pagan and philosophic yes, uh, faith yes structures. Maybe the universal Christ. Yeah. yeah, made me think of recently there was a big evangelical pastor I think down in Atlanta. Said, well, we don't really deal with the Old Testament anymore. I was like, well, nice to meet you, Marcy, and you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but, and the, so this is part of the challenge, I think, is what exactly do you do with the Old Testament? Well, There's a lot of uh, Christianity that really doesn't know. I think I shared last time the basic, and I don't mean to denigrate my background, but I don't remember really being given away to deal with the Old Testament, or to deal with, see, even that my language, to deal with it, uh, because you're basically, it's, I was basically told, it's old and it's dead and it's gone, right? Yeah. So what we do is we read it in order to get some moralistic tales. Uh, now, you have a better Protestant version of that that's definitely uh, strong in Reformed circles and in uh, Lutheran circles, but those aren't necessarily your kind of run-of-the-mill low-church evangelical, uh, and maybe they, some of that trickles down, where they definitely have a very strong Christological read uh, of the Old Testament. Um, but being able to hold this all together uh, with the way that the early church actually operated, uh, the way that we're supposed to approach and read scripture. Um, I mean, one of the strongest things in my reading of the Father so far in the tradition um, Besides, and this obviously they find uh, the fulfillment of uh, Christ fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures is like the baseline. That is the base assumption, right? Obviously, that is Christianity. Um, but the way somebody like Gregory of Nyssa in his life of Moses, when he, um, so let me pause. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa was a fourth century uh, saint. He's kind of a famous father even though he doesn't ha hold as much weight as somebody like Basil, his brother, or Gregory the Theologian. Uh, but he wrote a famous work uh, called The Life of Moses where at the beginning of the book he basically tells like the history or kind of the basic like narrative uh, of Moses and Exodus and all this and then he goes into a, a deep 
uh, reading, theological reading of this account. So his basic takeaway, and he can find, he find this is one of the earliest uh, explicit references to the Theotokos as the burning bush, for example, as in Gregor Nyssa's Life of Moses. Um, you get uh, outside of kind of the dogmatic, uh, the two natures of Christ, these kind of things like seeing God and man uh, reflected through all of Exodus is the main thing that he takes away from almost every reading is how to change his soul and how you should change your soul. That when he reads scripture and he reads these injunctions about how to prepare oneself, how to, for example, earlier we kind of skipped over when God reveals his name to Moses, right, in the burning bush. Um, he tells Moses to do what when he's approaching the bush? Take off your sandals. So Gregor Nyssa interprets this as you need to ascetically prepare yourself to actually enter into uh, the presence of God. And by asceticism, what, what is a sandal made out of? Leather. What is leather? Dead skin. What, what, dead flesh, right? So you can see, he's like, you need to take the flesh off, the dead flesh that is not alive, in order to approach the living God. So little details like that suddenly become kind of, uh, how shall I say, exhortations to the self in order for you to draw near to God. Uh, and this is time and again, this is how, uh, and it's not just, Greg, Gregory just does it in a really great kind of uh, concrete or, you know, we could you just go page by page and see how he does this. This, this is reflected through all of the fathers and the way that they read scripture. <clears throat> yes? I don't, I don't know if anybody did it in more detail than Clement. Uh, Alexander, <laughs> uh -huh. who basically had uh, three levels of interpretation yes. of the Old Testament. Um, the first one was kind of the literal meaning, which he didn't have a lot of use for. Uh, then was kind of the spiritual meaning. And then was the really deep, deep, deep spiritual meaning. Uh, and a lot of that is very difficult to follow. Yes. So what you will get, and a lot of it is flowing out of the way Paul talks about, uh, and I think we actually, probably the simplest way to describe it is exactly what happens when we read scripture and encounter scripture in the services themselves. That, as I was alluding to earlier, when we are reading, for example, we just had the Feast of the Nativity of the Theotokos, and we're reading uh, Ezekiel, the account of Jacob uh, with the ladder, and um, Ezekiel, where the, the uh, temple door is not opened again, and then, oh, I might forget the last one. Wisdom, thank you. That's always a very uh, reading. That wisdom is kind of this personification uh, in the Theotokos as wisdom, who has prepared her house, she's slaughtered the meat, she's set the table, and calling everyone to it. Those texts. If you were to go and kind of like look historically, you might be able to find Egyptian wisdom or like Chaldean wisdom literature that talks like similarly to that, but uh, at around the same time period, but it doesn't have the same meaning for us because we believe that the text uh, in the context of the church refers to salvation history and it refers to the events uh, surrounding, especially the incarnation of Christ. But that will include the Virgin Mary that will include the church. For example, who is the new Israel? Exodus Sinai creates Israel. What does 
the life, death, resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit of Christ do. It creates Israel, new Israel. This is Paul's language. Um, so that's kind of this, the spiritual meaning behind the text is not the obvious meaning that unless you were, in a way, initiated into the church and understand what the church, the basic teaching of the church, the text will be opaque to you. You won't be able to get at the meaning of it. That's a very low version of what some of the fathers are. Yes? Um, dude, all this, so when you refer to the fathers, can yes. you elaborate? Thank you. I'm like, yes, who are the fathers? Does anyone want to help with answering who are the fathers? Because I'm using that as just kind of a aside, assuming. All the, all the teachers, bishops, clergymen who wrote, um, scholars, don't they usually cut out the, like, John of Damascus? Not in the Orthodox Church. Huh? Not in the Orthodox Not Church. Orthodox. Yeah, that. Oh, in, 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 my, in my mind. Yeah, yeah in the West. Yes. Yeah. In, in, my, in, my in my mind, I've got Jesus. I have the apostles. This doesn't refer to the fathers as much as, like, authority no, no, within no, no, the church? Just, no, no, I'm not, I haven't mentioned the fathers yet. Okay. Jesus. Apostles and those who learned from the apostles, and that's when I start thinking about the fathers, those who learned from the apostles. Polycarp is always the first one that jumps into my mind because Polycarp. You, you were in the class that I started on, Ignatius, right? Ignatius is an early. You, this is a title that was not used in the early church, but we call it now as a kind of under this moniker of, of apostolic fathers: Polycarp, Ignatius. Uh, Clement of Rome, uh, uh, the Epistle to Barnabas. I mean, we kind of talked about some of that on Sunday, but this is that—that's a good breakdown. Uh, the, the revelation of who God is, Jesus Christ. He has chosen His twelve, His apostles. They are then surrounded also by the disciples. So there's not just there's kind of a kind of hierarchy here of those, and they go throughout the world. And then in that second generation, you're going to have the leaders, the teachers, uh, etc., who um, basically. Do what? They're post-apostolic. Yes, they're post-apostolic, but they're called fathers. So, right. for example, if you were uh, at vigil during the Lati, which is basically um, the supplicatory uh, prayer, we'll go through, uh, and it can happen, for example, also in, in the canon. Um, you don't typically hear uh, in the anaphora, the Orthodox Church, us going through and talking about, uh, well, you hear us say, especially for our most holy, blessed, glorious Lady of Theotokos, never... Ah, Virgin Mary, right? And then we, we, we do it the censor. That is immediately then followed by a silent prayer where you're going through and remembering John the Baptist, the forerunner, the apostles. Uh, if you're in a Roman mass, you would hear them. They'll say out loud kind of these ranks of saints. Um, the fathers, yes. I was going to say also, and then sometimes circumstance, because of circumstances, so the fourth century, for example, you get sort of an explosion. Yes. Of church fathers because of circumstances of Christianity becoming the guys who came into the rules. Yeah, because <laughs> because of Christianity becoming the, the religion of the Roman Empire. Yes, and you get that explosion there, and that explosion kind of lasts really for about three hundred years until really Islam comes along. Islam with, comes along with the Desert Fathers and all that. I mean, it's really it's rock and roll at that point with the Church Fathers, and then it continues through history. And like you said, it. it in the Orthodox Church, it never ends if you get someone like I will say, like Saint Porphyrios or yeah. Saint Paisius, right. who are 20th century, 20th century so 21st century, right. yeah. 
Exactly. So that there's elders that still we or will canonize, and they're now fathers so of the they're, church. So they're sort of like or mothers of the church too. It's yeah. not we just say fathers to kind of encapsulate. Like, there's a few a few hands up. There's sort of peaks in volume because mm-hmm. of circumstances, but it's it's a continuum. Yes. So uh, let me make the point. So on the fourth century, what what happens is there's this, we kind of look at uh, in the fourth century, for example, the liturgy is the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is the basic liturgy that we do every Sunday outside of the liturgy of St. Basil, which we can talk, we'll talk about that at a later point. Um, He is a fourth century saint. Uh, He was uh, from Syria, from Antioch, and he ends up uh, going and becoming the Archbishop of Constantinople. Uh, he is around uh, roughly the same time as people on the St. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory the Theologian, Basil the Great. So we'll say uh, the great ecumenical teachers in, uh, of the church are Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria, Gregory the, uh, the Theologian, Basil the Great, John Chrysostom. These are kind of, uh, they kind of set the basic framework that when you're thinking about orthodox theology, like if you just picked up and read Gregory the Theologian or Gregory of Nyssa, you would feel like you're reading something from the 19th century or the 20th. Like it's still the same thing, the way that Orthodox talk about themselves. This is into double digits waiting. Okay. <laughs> Actually, just the first time I read the Fathers, kind of used as a more general moniker of the, the Church Fathers. I just thought of like the founding fathers of the country. You hear that? In a very general sense. Yes. So, Without necessarily having to have all the theories about originalism or like that original intent and all that kind of stuff. We don't, that, let's just, so yes, I like the analogy, but there's a lot of that in North America that gets really funny quick. Were all the church fathers writers? No. <laughs> so well, those are the, ones the reason, I mean, at least that's the ones we read about, of course. Uh, well, but right. So what happens are there particular. So in the Orthodox Church, um, we can say there's like ranks of saints, and by ranks I don't mean like there's a sergeant and there's like a lieutenant, but I mean uh, in the Greek mind or in the Byzantine mind, you have uh, something called paxis, which is basically like order. Um, so you have. Uh, you'll always, and you'll find this because our prayers are, are exactly like this. And you'll start, once you see the patterns, you'll say, like, they're everywhere. For example, we will always, uh, in the litanies, it's always the same order, right? It's kind of a hierarchy where we're starting here, the world, and then who's remembered next? Our, metro, our primate and our local bishop. And then what comes next? The president. Right, because clergy will be commemorated in the president, civil authorities. It's like the emperor. Right. That's where the emperor would have been commemorated. Uh, uh, prayed for, not commemorated. Yeah. Uh, Christian. <laughs> so you, and you can see this kind of like hierarchy. It's the same with the great entrance. We'll do the same. Uh, it also helps to memorize <laughs> that you have the same order. But the, in the saints, you have the same uh, ordering that you have kind of uh, the apostles. <coughs> The prophet. So when we do, there's a preparatory service, and we can at some point later on in the classes go back. There's a preparatory service called the proskomedie, or where you basically set up the the loaf that is to be consecrated. Great. So on the side, I don't know if a lot of people weren't here for that. So we'll we'll go over it again at some point. But you'll have nine ranks of saints that are commemorated. So have like 
the great fathers and ecumenical teachers, Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, John Chrysostom. Then you'll have uh, those who are healers, uh, kind of doctors. Uh, you'll have martyrs. Uh, you'll have great ascetics, so the great monastic uh, fathers and mothers, and fathers and mothers are both commemorated in both of these. So you have a list of female saints too. Uh, just go down the list, there's, there's nine rank, ranks. Um, so there's this idea of there's always a place to be able to put a kind of category in which to think about. Uh, and the fathers are this category that we draw upon. And so, you, sorry, so you'll have like desert fathers or desert mothers. Maybe all that's written is somebody uh, has like five sayings from them. But you have like, I can't remember how many of like Abba Pambo, but we'll have a memory of uh, St. Pambo. Uh, but we have just a few sayings from him and that's it. Maybe some stories about him or something. One of the questions, and then I Please go. off topic. But when I, I was in the Lutheran church with Parkman here, and the, the people were virtual saints. Mm -hmm. Is that here? The, the people were virtual saints? As in, we would refer to us as the saints right. too? Yes. Okay. Saint at its heart means those who are set aside, right? Holy. Uh, we've all, by virtue of baptism, chrismation, and being a part of the body of Christ, are set aside and are a part of the saints. The Orthodox Church has a way of talking about those who have been uh, fully, how shall I say? Revealed? Glorified. Uh, even glorified, I think, is uh, maybe even a Latin term. I don't know what the Greek term is for it. Uh, because we borrow a lot of Latin ecclesiastical language sometimes, uh, because in English we don't, <laughs> we just don't have the same words to use. So uh, basically, that they are those that we are sure of God's mercy and that have proven themselves to be intercessors. If I may, Father, I've been through, for what it's worth, I've been through, I don't know, over half a dozen denominations because of the way I was raised in my, in my own personal search. All the mainline denominations and some, and some other denominations. And when I look at it in retrospect, retrospect, including Catholic, and when I look at it in retrospect, it absolutely blows me away. I never heard about the fathers until I got here. Not even in the and Roman I Church. I always remember Polycarp because the day I learned that Polycarp was a disciple of John, I remember thinking, well, I think I want to listen to that guy. What did anybody tell me about that? He's a disciple of John. Right. You know, and, and on it goes with Ignatius and everybody else. It, it just, it just, it absolutely astounded me that we have writings from the ancients right. themselves. And it's like, who knows better than the first five centuries even, than anybody even, else? Even the Greek. Uh, <laughs> I remember, I don't know if... Uh, Somebody was telling me, who's not here, his spouse is here, but somebody's spouse who's here, that they were in a church and they were uh, studying, the, you know, as a typical kind of church Bible study where you go through like chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And for this particular study, they decided they were going to read John Chrysostom on Romans. So Chrysostom on Romans, if you were to pick up almost any like modern Protestant um, 
commentary on Romans, what do you think the whole book is going to be? A debate about justification. The whole thing is always going to be about justification. Uh, it's all going to be about the Reformation. And you will be surprised to know, like Chrysostom will talk about justification, like that term, and the, that kind of basic idea, without, like, take that term and try to eliminate a lot of Protestant cobwebs around it or, like, attachments to it. He will talk about that stuff because Paul talks about justification, but he's not, he doesn't have the same framework that the reformers came to it and kind of like used that as the rallying cry against uh, Rome at that time. So Chrysostom is a fourth century writer who, when he comes to the text, he's not asking those questions that we all kind of like, so what exactly is going on? And so uh, like, I've got Romans one through eight down. I don't really know what to do with Romans nine and on. Uh, because then I have to deal with predestination or something, you know, these kind of questions that Romans, like, produces. Uh, and that was part of the reason for him then in reading Chrysostom and realizing, like, wait a second, <laughs> there's a way to read Romans that is not dictated in the past four or 500 years that actually goes back 1,500 years. Uh, and actually, I mean, one of the, the, the points, I think, uh, Chrysostom knew the Greek that Paul and, like, the art, like, it was around that kind of culture much closer than any of us are. Uh, he would have known, he knew, you know, uh, local rabbis, and they had, there's, uh, in that time period, there's, there are known debates and correspondence going back and forth between early church fathers and rabbis. Um, they're reading the same books, so guess what? They, they sometimes will argue with each other. Yeah, uh, not always in the best way, but they, they, they did talk to each other. Um, Intuitive feel that Chrysostom would have that. Yeah, yes. He, he's, in, he's, in, he's in the culture. He, 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 he would have been surrounded by Syriac speakers. Yeah, Syriac speakers are closer to Hebrew because yeah. of the language. I'm going to keep going so I can try because I now have a little less than 15 minutes. So um, that's fine. This is all. I'm sure everybody learned something in the past 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, the, the golden calf, I wanted to just stick with the golden calf because uh, it is a great kind of symbol for us in our own approach to worship that we come to worship and yet our minds and our hearts are still kind of back in Egypt, right? That idolatry uh, is a pretty easy thing to fall into. Um, and it, it points to... Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there is a kind of um, a deepening. In Exodus, you have, you can see the shadings, obviously, of where the heart, uh, that God wants the heart of this people that he's saved from Egypt, right? But he has to, go to uh, physically save them from Egypt. He then has to give them the worship that they need. He's, it's kind of like, I think the best way to talk about this, and it's the way that even Paul kind of talks about it, is... They're kind of babies, right? They, what they know is pagan idolatry. Uh, they've been surrounded by, by it. And you can even find it early in Genesis. There's like kind of like uh, local gods that are even in some of the patriarchs' households. If you pay attention to the text, there you'll talk about these like household gods. Or, uh, they have not purified themselves entirely of what it means to encounter the Lord of the universe, <laughs> the one who created everything. And God's like, no, really, <laughs> I'm not a tribal god. <laughs> I am the one who created everything. Uh, I've shown you this, like, 
with the Red Sea. I've shown you this by feeding you with manna from heaven. I've shown you this, with, you know, uh, but they still don't get it. So the law, that's the way that Paul talks about this, it's a, a teacher, it's a pedagogy. It's, it's something that is bringing Israel to understand what it means to worship one God. And so it takes time. Uh, right after this, right, you know, they get, they get into the, the promised land, they set, uh, set up shop, eventually, you know, they'll uh, build the temple. Uh, but things, once you get into something like um, uh, the reign of Josiah, and they don't know what they're doing, worship has completely fallen apart. Uh, he needs to completely uh, reinstate the worship that God revealed to them on Sinai and what they need to do. Uh, I was telling my kids the other day, did anyone grow up within a Bible classroom where they had uh, the kings of Israel and Judah like all along the perimeter of the classroom? Was I the only one? Shucks. Like no? You know what I'm talking about? No. no? I had like a childhood had all the, maybe like a poster or something. I had it, I don't know why. It was like a, a timeline. And so it was all, and it would show with like a red crown that they were bad and they're kind of like frowning or sour. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then a blue crown. If I'm, no, maybe the blue and red was like Judah and Israel. I can't remember. But you could tell who was good king and who was bad king. So can you imagine how many good kings there were? <laughs> Very. You just kind of like bad, 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 bad. <laughs> That's quite an impression on a child, too. <laughs> There's a lot of bad kings. Um, but with Josiah, he's... he's Jesus. You went from David to right? Jesus? Moses is David to Jesus. Well, I mean... The other guys were just biblical. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> so, Josiah is fascinating, David, if you've never... Yeah. Yeah. Josiah... He has to, and you'll get this uh, in, the, in the way the Protestant Bible type, Second Kings 23, I didn't look at the Septuagint because I don't have as many Septuagints as I have kind of normal North American Bibles around in my house, um, where they had to reactualize uh, the Pascha, the Paschal Lamb. They had to reinstate uh, temple worship. And uh, Deuteronomy, <laughs> it's presumed by many that Deuteronomy is what Josiah decided to read. Have any of you read Deuteronomy before? Okay. Deuteronomy is awesome. <laughs> Deuteronomy, if th that was the book in high school that I had this idea in my head that the Old Testament was kind of like all about physicality or like outwardness. And then like the New Testament, you get all inward fuzzy stuff. And then you read De Deuteronomy, you're like, man, I was completely, absolutely wrong. Um, I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. Uh, but Deuteronomy, you can tell that there is this turn uh, deeper into the heart of the people, that they need to worship God uh, with the fullness of their heart. You then have a kind of uh, extension again with Ezra when he comes back, when they come back from exile and they need to rebuild the temple. Uh, and you have then not only um, uh, the rebuilding the temple, but they start having particular prayers and the way the prayers are done in Nehemiah is uh, this prayer that's a blessing and thanksgiving. It's uh, if you say thanksgiving, uh, you're right there in the Greek. It would be Eucharist. They have these uh, prayers of thanksgiving that are offered, and this whole drive uh, are these kind of reiterations of Sinai, of God's victory and bringing them out. But it's a continual drive towards the heart. 
that God wants our hearts. That when we say blesses the kingdom, we really are saying blesses the kingdom from within, uh, that our lives are in conformity to that. The, the covenant of Sinai is then refracted throughout the entire Old Testament, and I don't want to hit on all of these, but just kind of uh, hit on uh, particularities of this. David and Solomon, obviously the kingdom of heaven. You have David and Solomon, the king after God's own heart, the shepherd king, and then Solomon, the wise king. You get Psalms, and you could say one of the basic themes of the prayer book of Israel is that the Lord is king, that his kingdom is what needs to be substantiated through his people, and uh, typically it's we're not able to do it, and he's the one who's going to come and save us because we're usually double-minded and or we just can't do it. Um, Isaiah, and I want to particularly look at Isaiah when you get one of the, uh, the great prophets uh, because the kingdom is then refracted through the, the prophets, you'll get this idea of a messianic banquet. Uh, and this is the banquet that, for us and the church, we'll say, of course, Jesus throughout the Gospels, right? He's, even the Pharisees are kind of like, why are you partying so much? Why are you, did you come eating and drinking? And he will tell them, you know, the kingdom uh, is here. This is the content of Jesus' preaching. And so you rejoice while the bridegroom is here. Um, this, uh, then, you, of course, you have the, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the whole uh, episode at Cana with changing water into wine, but it's also a messianic uh, fulfillment of what the prophets are talking about. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 25, you have the Almighty Yahweh, God, will prepare for all the nations. You already have that Israel is going to be a blessing for all nations, and in the end, God is going to bring all the nations of the world to pray and to worship at Zion in Jerusalem. God will, God will prepare for all the nations on this mountain a banquet of rich foods, a banquet of preserved wines, of spread out rich foods, and preserved refined wines. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering that is over all peoples, even the covering woven on all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe clean the tears from upon all faces, and the shame of his people he will remove from upon all the earth, for God has spoken. The reign of God, when God fully brings uh, all of the nations to the mountain, is a banquet. It is a place where he is going to feed us and he is going to give us drink that comes from his rule. Um, I really, the Old Testament and our approach to it, uh, the Old Testament is a kind of womb, if you will. Uh, it's where we, or as I used already, the way that Paul talks about the Old Testament and, and Israel, as you can see that God is weaning them off of idolatry He's bringing them further into what he intends for the kingdom. Uh, he's intimating the messianic banquet. That is what the kingdom is like. Um, and the Old Testament is therefore something that we don't, like a ladder, we don't need anymore. But it's something that we go to. It is the scriptures. It is where we will encounter Christ as the fulfillment of those scriptures. And we can delve into the depths of the, the scriptures and find Christ um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about next week because that's the next phrase in 
blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but all of this, uh, the kingdom, of course, comes in its fullness in Jesus Christ. It's the content of his preaching. Uh, it is the fulfillment of everything that the, the Messianic times are supposed to be, that he will accomplish in his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, you can even kind of see this uh, with the content of the kingdom uh, in the liturgy itself, with the Beatitudes that occurs right before the small entrance. You know, this is what the content of the kingdom is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Um, this is the theophany, the revelation of God. It impacts how we live in the same way that Sinai impacted the way that Israel was supposed to live. It called us out from the darkness, and it sets us uh, on a path to the promised land, to heaven itself. Are there any questions? <laughs> Lots of questions. One of the things about the Old Testament, and I think this is something that I've alluded to, but I want to underline in a particular strong way with this is part of the reason why the Old Testament is a pedagogy is because if you're trying to describe something to someone, you sometimes need to set the stage for them, right? You want to tell them this story, but you realize as you start telling them the story that you need to kind of tell them this story and this story and this story before they're going to get this story. It wouldn't even be funny, right? Mm then maybe you just need to not tell them the joke because then that's probably <laughs> too much. But the Old Testament works in giving us all of these images, these stories, these narratives, so that we have a depth and a plenitude to draw upon so that when Christ comes um, with a, you know, uh, changing of the water into the wine, you, on one level you can just read that and say like, okay, God is powerful. <laughs> God can, like, change water into wine. So that's miraculous, right? You should believe in God. Okay, some people, that's what they need. And they, they will have faith from that. Or you say, he turns water into wine. I'm not in any way denying the historicity of what Jesus did with this. But he does that because he's echoing what all the promises of Old Testament, what the Messianic age is supposed to be like. And if you know the Old Testament... The New Testament is going to sing for you in a way that, uh, yeah, you just won't be able to read the, the, the New Testament correctly if you do not understand the Old Testament uh, with some kind of depth. Uh, it can be challenging, but it's worthwhile. Any questions? Yes? For me, the New Testament came to life for real in after I read the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. It just was so much deeper, and so I had so much of a better understanding because mm -hmm. it, it mirrors each other. Well, it's unfortunate because it kind of, what can happen is that Jesus, when he's unhooked from the Old Testament, he can so easily be used in a kind of ideological ways. And I mean, the most obvious thing that I can think of, for example, that's happened in the past century is the way that German Christianity, a lot of them, were able to, uh, especially the Nazi party, they were able to disconnect Jesus from Judaism, and all of a sudden Jesus is at, and this is kind of a strand actually what I was talking about, there's a tendency that can occur uh, in certain forms of, uh, not, it's not just Protestant, but it's particularly in Protestant, that you have to have, and this is, I'm kind of picking on Lutheranism here, you have 
really strong idea of law and then gospel, and there's this kind of like dialectic that go that goes on there. And when you have a really strong uh, Jesus fulfills, completes whatever, then you can get a, a kind of also basic like we don't really need it. And those who still follow it, they're just do what? Well, we we need the law, but it's this degraded, earthy like. Uh, not the fullness of the revelation. And on one hand, like, yes, it's not the fullness of the revelation, but you need it in order to understand the fullness of the revelation. Let's say the fullness of God was revealed at all of these points to the people when they needed it. And Jesus Christ that then fulfills everything. Because I would say it's Jesus Christ the whole time that is the revelation that is occurring for Israel. He's got the God. He has the scriptures. Yes, Terry. Learn a lot from what I got. A flashback. Yes. If we live surrounded by a Protestant culture, uh-huh. in which it's tempted to see me and God have got our plan worked out, salvation as a dominant, and that that's tempting to think that's the only image that we see in the New Testament. Can we also acknowledge that in some cultural aspects of the ancient churches, there's a tendency to say that there is only this other model, which basically is me and my grandparents and my genetic DNA pool are all basically automatically in the church and there's right, a temptation so there as well. It's a temptation for Israel. You're uh, talking about like the sons of Abraham. That, that, I, I, I'm yeah. thinking of the gospel there where you, you can have a tension. So, all right, I'll say it like certain forms of Christianity will have certain temptations built into it. If you are a kind of a revivalist, low church, you're going to have problems with uh, discipleship that goes beyond getting saved and getting your ticket to, you know, your ticket to heaven punched. Uh, you're going to not have, everything is going to be run on an emotional, like, high level. And then in the, the high church, or high church, I don't even like using it, historic church, yeah, you have 2,000 years of people. So one of the challenges is going to be... Uh, this is the faith of my grandparents, uh, but they don't actually have a faith. And so you go through the motions, which is the same challenge that which you Which is have. the Protestant critique we often hear of dead ritualism. Yes, but which, I've been in enough Protestant churches to realize that that is just an endemic problem, oh, period. <laughs> been there, done that, yeah, I yeah. know. Well, what, what I've said, though, they want to turn everything into the thief on the cross, or Paul Fuck being knocked off a horse. And then other people only have this image of, frankly, infant baptism right. being brought, you know, and kind of DNA, evangelism by DNA. Mm-hmm. It, both are <coughs> images in the, both are biblical images. Both yes. occur. I mean, God can do what God wants to do. But like you said, there is a temptation that we have when we draw those as the only way that God works. Well, it's safe to say? Absolutely. Well, and I think, basically, I think orthodoxy is, and I, I've alluded to this in the past, orthodoxy has this fascinating way to keep intention, uh, and it can fall apart, like any, you know, uh, group of people. But we have a very, fairly, sh- we have a strong institutional hierarchical church. And at the same time, our entire tradition is if you're going to see who like who really has the most import and like uh, impact <laughs> on people are kind of like charismatic elders uh, and uh, holy men and women 
have the most say, and there's this kind of constant tension between uh, the institutional aspect of the church and then this charismatic element that was within the church. And I think that's that orthodoxy just keeps that tension there, so that you're some people are going to come uh, via you know their grandparents made sure that they were baptized, and et cetera, and others are going to have uh, a complete uh, atheistic background. And the early church is rife with, you know, we have uh, Gregory the Th uh, Basil the Great and Gregory Nyssa, two things as we talked about tonight. Their, their uh, if I remember, their grandparents were converted uh, when Gregory the Wonder Worker came to Cappadocia to preach the gospel to them. Uh, so they were raised in the Christian church. Uh, they put off baptism until later, so they don't necessarily, they didn't get infant baptized, but then when they were young adults, they made the decision to go all in. Uh, but at the same time, you have all sorts of examples from that time period of folks who convert, uh, I'm thinking like St. Pacomius, I think he's a little bit later than them. Uh, he was a Roman uh, a soldier who was in a jail, and some Christians came by and fed him. And that just, completely opened his eyes to the gospel because Christians came and fed him in, in the prison. So, any other last questions or need to wrap up? <laughs>